Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is episode number 13 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, April the 30th. First, I'll be talking to Dean Foley, founder and CEO of Baremial, Australia's Indigenous Business Accelerator and world leader in Indigenous entrepreneurship. We'll be talking about the difference between Western and Indigenous entrepreneurship. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. But now, let's talk to Dean Foley. Dean, at the uh, Baramiel um, Innovation Acceleration Hub, uh, can you tell us about the difference between... Indigenous entrepreneurship and Western entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big topic. There's a lot of different Indigenous communities that operate kind of differently, but it all comes down to you know how the two different cultures operate. Just as you know, Western and Eastern cultures uh, differ. Like, you've have you travelled much around Asia? Sure, yes. Uh, so you probably noticed that there's you know, some differences how people operate and around Asia. And, you know, generally speaking, you know, they're very family oriented. You know, they'll do anything for the family. We Europeans, um, generally speaking, again, are more focused on themselves and individualism. 
which brings into Indigenous people, whether in Australia and I've seen uh, in other Indigenous communities too, you know, their, their highest priorities, communities, so, you know, how they operate the business or their, you know, how they innovate is focused on um, community benefits. Instead of, you know, in Australia, generally, we just focus, you know, businesses to make profit for the owner and the shareholders. And, you know, so focusing on the, the individual benefits instead of the community benefits. And so it's much more community focused. Yeah, that's correct. Indigenous entrepreneurship. Mm, yeah, 100%. I guess, uh, you know, we, we've seen some comparisons, like, you know, you always... Like Rio Tinto blowing up, um, you know that that um, yeah, George, yes. yeah, blowing up that, you know. But that's, I guess, you know how it is, and you know the Western societies, again, generally speaking, even though there's something there, you know, culturally significant or maybe even environmentally significant, you know, if it's profit to be made, you know, that's uh, the highest prioritization. Whereas if Rio Tinto was operating from a First Nations Indigenous perspective, then, you know, that wouldn't have happened per se, because the benefit to community, the environment, um, to the people would have been, you know, the highest priority. Um, of course. Well, can you give me some examples of Indigenous entrepreneurship as, as you know, being so different? Yeah, it's probably... Like I know some of the Indigenous entrepreneurs in our community, they get frustrated sometimes. Like one of them had a non-Indigenous consultant who was like, why the hell are you, are you doing stuff in the community? Um, you should be just focusing on profit. And she was just like, well, you know, that's what Indigenous people do, you know, obviously trying to run a business here and, and make things sustainable and, and successful. But, you know, we need to integrate community and you know i need to help community out you know where i can with the non-indigenous consultant didn't want to worry about you know community per se just wanted to focus on initiatives that would increase profit and in, in growth in that area so that's one example i mean there's heaps of indigenous entrepreneurs you know we work with that try to help out and, and give back where they can. Like we had an Indigenous catering business that, you know, would try and try and help community organisations by giving them discounts, like massive discounts and, and help out there where they could. Indigenous entrepreneurship, you know, was, there's actually, uh, because, you know, Western uh, society in Australia is dominated by Western culture. Unfortunately, you know, some Indigenous organisations are operating from the Western perspective. So there's, a, there's a few negative stories I've, I can definitely uh, talk about off the top of my head. But even, yeah, I guess Barry Gummel itself, you know, we're focusing on when we first started out, we increased the revenue by, you know, hundreds of percent within the first couple of years. But then we had to, you know, check even check ourselves and say we shouldn't be just focusing on increasing revenue just for revenue's sake we should start focusing on you know the impact we're having in communities so at so instead of just writing grants and that kind of stuff we're looking at you know feedback from the community was was some of the challenges and and what can we what can we do what can we build to have a bigger community impact instead of just trying to get more money I mean, I would imagine, I mean, all entrepreneurs have challenges, but do mm. the Indigenous entrepreneurs have distinctive challenges? Yeah, you've definitely hit a, a massive point. And I've, I've seen a shift. I think most people have seen a shift where how the, the Western world works is, you know, we have this philosophy that, you know, if a few people do well, they're not have a positive ripple effect. 
you know, rich people get rich and then they employ people kind of thing. And, and uh, what we've seen since COVID is that um, from memory, the wealth of you know, the top 1% increased by, shit, I can't remember, statistic increased by like 3 billion. Well, the loss of wages from people impacted from COVID was around about 3 billion. Uh, was, uh, I think it was 3 trillion actually across the world. So the gap of um, the wealth disparity gap between the rich and you know, every other Australian um, trying to make it and you know live the Australian dream is very challenging. So there's a lot of people, non-Indigenous people, who are starting to question that model, the capitalist model, as in doesn't it's not very potentially sustainable because the rich, that gap between the rich and everybody else seems to um, continually grow. Well, well about the distinctive challenges facing Indigenous So Indigenous people, specifically in Australia, you know, they've been locked out of um, Australia's economy for 150 years or so. So there's not much intergenerational wealth. And you look at um, some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, most of them don't come from average backgrounds. They come from quite wealthy backgrounds like Bill Gates. His, his father was, you know, a successful lawyer and businessman. Jeff Bezos, you know, very similar. You know, these guys got, you know, laptops to learn how to code, learn how to code when they were like, you know, in, in diapers, you know, 10 years old and all that kind of stuff. Indigenous people, you know, generally speaking, most of them, are, they don't have that intergenerational wealth. A lot of them come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, they're just trying to survive. Not They're not getting laptops and that when they're 10 years old to learn how to code and then get the support they need to, to become uh, majorly successful. So access to capital is, is probably the biggest challenge. And again, it's probably the biggest challenge uh, for most Australians, um, but because Indigenous people, you know, were locked out of the economy for 150 years. And there's so many, you know, stories behind that. I think the Queensland government had to pay back compensation to Indigenous people that weren't paid wages in Queensland. They had to pay out of like 150 million from memory. So that's, yeah, that's the biggest challenge. And because of that, you know, there's probably other things too. Dennis Foley, he's an Indigenous academic. Um, I don't know if we relate it, but he's an Indigenous academic. He specialises in research around Indigenous entrepreneurship. And, you know, one of his things that he reckons is a big, big challenge is discrimination, you know, potential racism towards Indigenous entrepreneurs who are um, perceived as, you know, not good enough and, you know, potentially have more challenges when trying to get funding and that kind of stuff. So yeah, quite quite a quite a range of different things. But yeah, like you said, you know, I think heaps of entrepreneurs and Australians who aren't in that you know top one percent um, generally you no know, struggle. But uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs would have a lot of difficulty uh, getting finance. Yeah, finance. Um, you know, there's probably heaps of stories. Of, we interviewed like half a dozen Indigenous entrepreneurs, and yeah, the they didn't have very positive experiences with the bank. I mean, one of the business entrepreneurs we interviewed was in construction, you know, generating millions of dollars in revenue and really expanding on his business. And like, even though the banks and that had these, had these little indigenous like corporate social responsibility uh, guys in there focused on, on uh, supporting indigenous people, like he, he didn't find them very helpful. A lot of them were non-indigenous, like a lot of people that are going to banking, uh, generally, especially the higher ups, you know, again, you know, they don't, 
they don't come from the average Australian background, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, you know what bankers are, bankers are like. So yeah, so you know, they don't really understand or you know appreciate or or connect with Indigenous people and Indigenous struggles. So yeah, access to finance, um, even though they have these tokenistic gestures, there's nothing really happening there. And you know, we've reached out to VCs, venture capitalists and, you know, across Australia. The VCs in Australia had the biggest funding race last year. I think they raised over 1.4 billion. And again, yeah, not much, not much traction there. A lot of excuses, uh, which I've heard before, like especially around the funding uh, for women movement. You know, VCs whinging that there's not enough quality uh, women founders and that kind of stuff. They're, they're basically using the same excuses for Indigenous people around the world um, not just in Australia uh, that you know there's not enough quality Indigenous entrepreneurs and all that kind of stuff so yeah unfortunately not much support there and uh, and a lot of government funding like we always hear about you know a lot of government funding going to the Indigenous affairs space and not much happening you know from memory when they were doing the the closing the gap disparity uh, campaign, you know, over 10 years, seven targets, I think two of them were on track. But you look at even even that, the government's, the, the money, you know, people dissected all that. And most of that money was actually gone to non-Indigenous organisations. Right, right. And you see these big corporates, they're always promoting, you know, the corporate social responsibility and being the indigenous space and you know their employment and all this kind of crap but you look behind the scenes and they're actually getting money from the government there was an article recently that you know some was a couple of the the top uh, corporates t1 corporates got like in total 90 million for indigenous employment just for employing indigenous people it's like these are publicly listed companies that you know are making billions in profit and they can't even find the money to employ indigenous people they have to get it off the government so you know you have yeah a whole range there's heaps of variables and um yeah so th- there's not much money going directly to yeah indigenous people and in- indigenous economic community development well yeah well that's all quite fascinating dean and uh certainly something that we all have to be cognizant of and we'll be watching uh, Baramiel and uh, the Indigenous entrepreneurs very closely. I hope uh, we see big things coming out of that sector. Yeah, thanks, Leon. Um, yeah, Indigenous people have been, you know, innovating uh, for quite a, quite a while and it's it's nothing new and, you know, there's the oldest agriculture structure in the world sure, um, sure. down in Melbourne that used to farm eels and, and fish. So, the potential's there, um, just need the, the right support. But really appreciate you, yeah, interviewing and, and having a yarn and hopefully, yeah, add some value to your listeners and helped out some way. Yeah, well, let's let's all keep an eye out on it. Thank you very much, Dean. Legend. Thanks, Leona. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, well, Craig, what's ahead in the market for the week ahead? Well, it'd be a pretty boring week if the Reserve Bank wasn't uh, there somewhere around the place. And uh, certainly the Reserve Bank is uh, dominating proceedings over the coming week. We've got the board meeting happening on on Tuesday. Uh, Not going to see any changes in in monetary policy settings. But um, what the Reserve Bank does have on on the Friday is the statement of monetary policy. So uh, at the Tuesday meeting, they'll basically sign off on the new forecast. And uh, it's likely that they'll be upgrading some of their forecasts. 
certainly that's something that we'll be watching out for. The Reserve Bank has been for somewhat upbeat in terms of um, the looking at the economy in recent uh, times. It's interesting, if you look at the um, economic forecast or growth forecast for 2021, you're expecting 4% growth and 3.5% in 2022. Now, they seem like pretty you know, solid growth rates. Normally here in Australia, it's around about um, 2.5% to 3%. So certainly that seems pretty strong. But ourselves here at the uh, Commonwealth Bank Group, we're looking for even stronger growth of 5.4% this calendar year and three and a half percent the next year. Now, we think that the Reserve Bank will upgrade some of their forecasts, but probably leave the inflation forecast relatively uh, sort of unchanged. Uh, the expectation is that um, underlying inflation will hold between one and a quarter and one and three quarter percent out to June 23. So this basically is in accordance with the Reserve Bank view that there won't be any interest rate hike until 2024 at the, the earliest. So uh, Reserve Bank on board meeting on Tuesday, watching out for that, seeing if there's any anything that comes out from, from that, which um, we're not expecting, and the statement of monetary policy happening on Friday. There's one other thing from the Reserve Bank that will be occurring over the week. That's the uh, the de Deputy Governor, Guy DeBell, will be giving a speech on the Thursday, uh, the 6th of May, and uh, it's entitled Monetary Policy During COVID. So, We'll be looking back at the, the, how monetary policy reacted to the, the COVID you know, sort of virus and um, perhaps uh, the, some things that the Reserve Bank you know, sort of learned from that overall experience. So um, apart from the Reserve Bank, it's pretty much chockers in terms of economic data uh, over the, the week. Um, there's something, I've, I've totted up the number, there's something like 16 indicators to be released uh, over the week. Um, uh, my highlight, my favourite, I suppose, in terms of, uh, the economic data is the, the core logic figures on home prices that will be coming out uh, Monday, Monday the 3rd of May. And what we're looking for is continued strong growth in terms of home prices. All the anecdotes are pointing that way. We do know for the month of March, there was a 2.8% rise in home prices. It was the biggest rise in 32 years. And it's not just capital cities. It's, we also have 2.5% increase in terms of regional home prices. Home prices nationally at the moment up 6.2% over, over the year. So that is something that the Reserve Bank may refer to in terms of the, the board minutes on Tuesday to see whether they're still um, comfortable about you know, what, what's happening with home prices. So, but um, if uh, these home prices continue to gallop ahead, we may see some of the um, regulatory uh, bodies uh, wading in yes, with their, their view on things. So. Uh, those uh, home prices coming out on Monday, that's one of the highlights, I think, of the, the week. The other couple of things to watch out for is uh, we've got a whole range of purchasing manager surveys. So these are surveys of purchasing managers, particularly in terms of the manufacturing sector and the services sector. There is also a gauge on the construction sector that performance construction index is out on Wednesday. But these have been super strong. And uh, purchasing managers you know, should know what's going on in the economy if they're seeing you know, sort of strong growth in terms of um, the demand for, for um, uh, their, their services. Uh, so um, uh, watch out for those uh, over the week. Uh, job ads from the ANZ coming out on Monday as well. We know job advertisements are at a 12-year high. So um, certainly uh, the concerns about JobKeeper ending, you know, sort of, uh, they dissipate somewhat given you know, sort of all the, the jobs which are on offer. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the, the latest jobs figures, though, were fascinating. I mean, 5.6%. I mean, that's that was much lower than um, 
uh, what anyone was expecting. And indeed, the, the Reserve Bank had been uh, forecasting just to be uh, much higher at that at this stage. Now, the issue is, will the... Uh, now, now you, you said the Reserve Bank has indicated they're going to keep interest rates on hold at, at, uh, at their low level for till 2024, but uh, will the jobs figures uh, point to any change? And I've noticed CBA has been forecasting unemployment to fall to 4.7% uh, by the end of 2022. Yeah, certainly, we're more upbeat in terms of um, the expectation of the job market than the Reserve Bank. I think part of the problem with the, the Reserve Bank is that it's only once a quarter they revisit their, their forecast, and a lot has happened in the last three months. So we may see an upward revision for the Reserve Bank in terms of their view in terms of uh, jobs. Uh, for 4.7% by the end of 2022, the end of this year, we're looking at a 5% jobless rate, down from the current levels of 5.6%. Now, the question is about um, how tight is tight. The Reserve Bank has got this view that the unemployment rate can fall to levels like 4, 4.1, 4.2, you know, something of the order of that magnitude, before wage pressures start to, to come through. So that's the view that they're working on at the moment. The question is, are they going to be right now? There's a lot of uh, things that are in the mix uh, for um, the job market at the moment. We do know that the foreign borders are effectively closed, except for those with, with New Zealand. Uh, that means we don't get uh, the, the migrants, uh, school migrants here coming through. So it should mean that there's better opportunities for Australian job seekers to be able to get any job that they want at the moment. The question is whether they're going to do the jobs which are on offer. And we, we do know in West Australia at the moment, the, the building industry is going gangbusters. And... Um, Western Australian businesses have been advertising in the East Coast papers for, for people to come over and help um, build all the new homes that are requested you know, in Western Australia. So if they don't get those skills, what happens is upward pressure on wages, and that may mean upward pressure on prices. So I think that is the area to watch, Leon. I think you know, we've got to watch that this, this job market doesn't um, become too tight too quickly and you know, sort of force the Reserve Bank hand to coming through with uh, rate hikes a little bit earlier than what they thought. Well, uh, uh, the, reserve, the unemployment rate would have to be somewhere around 4.7, 4.5% or 4.1, 4.2% consistently for several months to force up inflation. Wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, I think you're, you're right in terms of that. Uh, the Reserve Bank's working on the view that you need to get wages up around about 3%, 3% annual growth in terms of wages before you start to get, you know, sort of, a little bit excited about things. So the unemployment rate will need to probably fall to the fours somewhere. Um, uh, you need wages to be rising at something like a 3% annual rate for the Reserve Bank to, uh, to be concerned about uh, inflationary pressures. But this is something that's actually occurring right the way across the globe at the, the moment, particularly in terms of the United States. It's a nice little segue in terms of what's happening um, overseas over the, the coming uh, week. Uh, what we do have is uh, the same sort of purchasing managers indexes will be coming out of the United States and China, and they've been pretty strong you know, sort of late. But, of course, it's the job market, again, you know, sort of very much is, is centre stage. The US uh, payrolls last month for, for the, the month of March, they rose by 950,000, and the unemployment rate has fallen to 6%. So um, I think the same sort of issues of concern are in terms of the United States that things are actually happening a little bit quicker than what a lot of people thought. The Federal Reserve would like interest rates to stay super low for a long period of time. 
so we can get this um, uh, economic recovery consolidated. But um, the question is whether yes, things will actually become yes, sort of a little bit too hot too, too early. Of course, a lot depends on the, the virus, a lot depends on the vaccine. And um, we are in you know, the hands of you know, the, the health authorities, really, at the moment, rather than the economic authorities. Um, if um, we continue to see good progress in terms of the vaccine, we see uh, suppression in terms of the, the, the virus numbers, then we will see the you know, stimulus methods, stimulus um, measures that have been applied across the, the globe will be able to work their magic. And we know that they're working their magic beautifully in Australia. We have got much stronger growth than what we initially expected. Um, and that's raising these sorts of issues of concern about uh, the jobless rate, how tight it is, what's happening to wages and the like. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch, but it's going to mean a really, I mean, you said there's not much happening in the week, but uh, it looks like it's chock-a-block full of things. Uh, very much the case. Yeah, well, well, Craig, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the European Commission has launched legal action against AstraZeneca for not respecting its contract for the supply of COVID-19 vaccines and for not having a reliable plan to ensure timely deliveries. AstraZeneca had committed to delivering 180 million vaccine doses in the second quarter of this year, but it later said it would only be able to deliver 70 million. In response, AstraZeneca said the legal action was without merit and pledged to defend itself strongly in court. Under the contract, the Anglo-Swedish company had committed to making its best reasonable efforts to deliver 180 million vaccine doses to the EU in the second quarter of this year, for a total of 300 million in the period from December to June. But AstraZeneca said in a statement on March 12th it would aim to deliver only one-third of that by the end of June, of which about 70 million would be in the second quarter. A week after that, the Commission sent a legal letter to the company in the first step of a formal procedure to resolve disputes. And Microsoft's third quarter sales rose 19%, lifted by robust demand for cloud computing services and the strongest quarterly jump in personal computing shipments in more than two decades. As well as owning popular office software, the company has a Teams collaboration chat and video application that has been widely used during the pandemic. Revenue in the period ending March 31 rose to US $41.7 billion, the Redmond, Washington-based software maker said on Tuesday in a statement. That compared with the US $41.1 billion average estimate of analysts polled by Bloomberg. And Australian exporters face growing scrutiny and financial costs under a potential US border adjustment scheme that Joe Biden has threatened to put at the centre of his fight against climate change. At last week's 40-country climate summit hosted by Mr Biden, which heralded Washington's emphatic return to global carbon policymaking with a bold pledge to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% to 52% by 2030, the administration also quietly sharpened its warnings to laggards. Failure to curb emissions means America will tax your exports. Washington's hardening line on such imposts, which echo similar moves by the European Union, puts the Morrison government under renewed pressure to accelerate towards adopting a policy of net zero emissions by 2050. The prospect of US efforts to influence laggards also threatens to create collateral damage across some of America's closest and important allies in the Indo-Pacific, including India, Japan, Australia and South Korea. Trade Minister Dan Tian, speaking from the Royal Australian Air Force VIP aircraft as it approached the West Australian coastline after holding trade talks in London and meeting with German officials on green steel, said the government had made clear to the US and Europe its concern about border adjustment mechanisms. And in a new report released on Monday evening, the Blueprint Institute 
has called for a standard tax deduction of $3,000 for any taxpayer that wants to use it. The deduction would cover work-related expenses and a range of other personal deductions, with Blueprint arguing this would give 80% of taxpayers an extra $400 to $1,000 annually and pave the way to eliminate 7.9 million tax returns per year. Taxpayers who use the standard deduction would no longer have to submit an itemised list of deductions. Blueprint estimates this would cut annual compliance costs for Australians by $4 billion, save us $750 million a year in accounting and legal fees, and cost the annual budget less than $5 billion. And Crown Resorts has been slapped with a $1 million fine by Victoria's gambling regulator over its failure to vet high-roller junket tour partners for criminal links and other probity issues. The Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation said on Tuesday afternoon the fine was the maximum amount it could impose on the James Packerback Casino Group for failing to comply with its regulatory obligations. And members of a Melbourne-based division of KPMG were dismissed and more women were promoted into leadership positions following an investigation into annual Boys' Night Out events that featured binge drinking and other effed-up behaviour, such as hiring strippers that were allegedly expensed to the firm. In addition to visiting strip clubs, attendees of the Boys' Night Out, held in the mid-2010s, described events where one staff member crawled through his own vomit on Swanson Street and another was picked up in an ambulance. The firm investigated the behaviour in 2018 after being alerted to the 2015 Boys' Night Out after the invitation was sent to 80 male employees ranging from summer interns through to directors in the firm's private enterprise division. The division provides a range of services to family-owned businesses, family offices and fast-growing companies. KPMG fired some of those involved. It put more women into leadership positions and told partners and staff that there is no tolerance for this behaviour at the firm. And you'd have to expect nothing less from a bunch of accountants. Fresh on the heels of revelations that the ultra-exclusive Australia Club has received lucrative government subsidies, including JobKeeper, None other than the CPA Australia, the governing body of more than 168,000 accountants, has revealed it is also sitting pretty, thanks to government handouts. In the 12 months of December 31, the organisation, led by President and Chairman Merrin Kelsall, boosted its operating surplus before tax by more than 40% to $6.3 million. That's even as employee costs blew out by $10 million and revenue dropped from $168 million to $156 million. As it turned out, even the group's exorbitant enrolment fees weren't enough for it to ride out the pandemic. Calling on Josh Frydenberg's treasury for $7.4 million in JobKeeper payments over six months, without which the group would very much be deep in the red. Referencing the handouts in their KPMG audited annual report, CPA said it was eligible under the initial scheme in September, but fell outside of the criteria for the first or second extensions. And the CSIRO's Technology and Science Investment Fund, main sequence, raised $250 million to form a second fund to invest in emerging Australian deep tech and science-based startups, which it says demonstrate the potential to solve the world's biggest problems. Main Sequence now has $490 million in funds under management, with major investments from its first fund, Horizon Ventures, Host Plus and Temasek, returning for a second shot, alongside multi-family office operator, Mutual Trust and Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. CSRO Chief Executive Larry Marshall, said Main Sequence was different from the many other Australian venture funds that had grown up markedly in recent years, in that it did not target typical tech or tech software startups. Rather, its investments were either in existing companies or in creating new ones which fit the six predefined global challenges. 
These challenges are to feed $10 billion by planet-proofing the global food system, decarbonising the planet to reverse humans' climate impact, making healthcare accessible for everyone, augmenting Australia's existing biggest industries, building the tools for society to adapt to the artificial intelligence era, and developing space tech so that humanity can benefit from space resources. And next month's federal budget will be only a down payment on measures tailored to benefit female voters, with the government planning a more extensive policy rollout in the lead-up to the next federal election. While the budget, for example, is expected to contain changes to superannuation to help women bolster their retirement savings, more substantial measures, such as a mechanism to enable catch-up contributions, are likely to come later. The government has responded to pressure to deliver a female-friendly budget on May the 11th, after the October budget last year was criticised for focusing support measures on male-dominated industries such as housing construction and manufacturing. That pressure intensified in the wake of revelations this year of the alleged rape of former staffer Brittany Higgins and the historical allegations levelled against Cabinet Minister Christian Porter, all of which exposed Scott Morrison to accusations that he had tin ear towards women and their issues. And fossil fuel subsidies have cost state, territory and federal budgets roughly $10.3 billion over the past financial year, or $19,686 a minute, according to a new report from the Australian Institute. The Australian Institute says fossil fuel subsidies cost more than army capabilities in the budget. The progressive think tank says the $7.84 billion allocated for the fuel tax credit scheme in the federal budget alone exceeds the $7.82 billion spent on army capabilities or the $7.55 billion on air force capabilities. It also has calculated state governments have contributed some $1.2 billion to coal, oil and gas companies by helping reduce the cost of exploration, improving ports, railways and power stations, while funding research aimed at reducing emissions caused by burning fossil fuels. And a new report into the nation's migration levels warns of potential economic harm if skilled migrant numbers are not restored, saying the budget's deficit position could be affected. The new research by BIS Oxford Economics reveals overseas migrants have an employment participation rate of 92% compared with just 66% for the overall working age population. Property developers are calling for a return to positive net migration levels in light of the economic research, which reveals migrants were responsible for 57% of Australia's population growth over the past decade and are among the biggest buyers of housing. The research foreshadows that the loss of migration associated with the international border closure will result in 1.1 million fewer residents in Australia in 2030-31, meaning the population will be smaller and older than previously expected, which will result in a longer-term structural deficit than previously predicted by Treasury. BIS Oxford Economics Chief Economist Sarah Hunter said Sydney and Melbourne captured 75% of temporary workers and permanent residents, with migration levels remaining relatively stable at around 220,000 a year over the past decade before COVID struck. From April to November last year, just 4,400 migrants arrived in Australia, down from 63,000 over the same time frame in 2019. International students make up the largest category of overseas arrivals, with full fee-paying students bringing in revenue for universities, spending on local goods and services, requiring housing and access to public amenities, as well as generating revenue for local retail, recreational activity and housing services. And the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors has put the top 200 listed companies on notice over their climate policies, threatening to take action that could see directors ousted if they fall short on managing climate-related risks. 
As part of its new climate change policy released on Monday, AXI will use its financial clout to push corporate Australia forward on climate change, pledging to recommend members vote against director re-election where companies fail to take adequate climate action. The influential AXI, which advises more than $1 trillion of industry super funds and institutional investors, including BMS, Australian Super, Aware Super and QSuper, in its new policy called on policymakers to deliver credible and continued support for action to achieve a net zero emissions and climate resilient economy. It comes days after the Prime Minister appeared at a US virtual climate summit and said Australia was well on the way to reaching a 26 to 28% reduction in 2005 emissions levels by 2030, but failed to commit to net zero emissions by 2050. And climate change is by far and away the top priority for investors, with a focus on environmental, social and governance, or ESG factors, according to new research. But their investment advisors are less enthusiastic. A survey of more than 2,000 active investors by Research House Investment Trends in January and February found 78% of self-identified ESG investors intend to buy and sell stocks and funds based on environmental factors in the next year. This was followed by corporate governance, 46%, social issues, 34%, and Indigenous issues, 31%. The finding represents a 34% jump in demand for environmental investing compared to 2020 research, in which 58% of respondents indicated climate change and the environment was their highest ESG priority. Demand was particularly heightened among the next generation investors, with 74% of Generation Z respondents, those aged 18 to 24, indicating they had traded a stock or had exposure to an investment product based on environmental factors. And Ben Robert Smith has stood down from his role as general manager of media company 7Q Queensland and 7 Brisbane to focus on his upcoming defamation trial. Mr Robert Smith, a highly decorated former soldier and Victoria Cross recipient, is suing the Age and Sydney Morning Herald over reports he allegedly committed murder during deployments to Afghanistan between 2009 and 2012 and that he also allegedly punched his mistress in the face in Canberra in 2018. Mr Robert Smith denies the allegations and says the reports are defamatory because they portray him as a criminal. The media will defend the claim, using a truth defence at a trial to start on June the 7th. A UK-listed Entain has increased its bid from $3 billion to $3.5 billion for Tabcor's trouble wagering a medium business, upping pressure on the company to consider the offer while undertaking a strategic review of that arm of the business. The board told the market on Tuesday that the revised proposal continues to be subject to numerous conditions including due diligence, arranging financing, receipt of relevant regulatory approvals and obtaining various third-party approval and consents. Last month, Tabcor chairman Stephen Gregg officially put the wagering and media business in play by launching a broad strategic review after batting away Entain's $3 billion bid. And Coles supermarket sales fell for the first time in more than 50 quarters as the retailers cycled the surge in spending from panic buying in March last year. Same-store supermarket sales fell 6.4% in three months ending March after growing 13.1% in the same quarter last year and by about 30% month of March when panicked shoppers stuffed their trolleys with toilet paper and pantry stables as the coronavirus spread. Coles same-store food sales rose 3.3% in the first six weeks of the March quarter, so the negative results suggest same-store sales for the last six weeks of the quarter fell by more than 12%. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Michael Ohanessian, CEO of Manager Accounts Platform Premium. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about how we should re-evaluate fiscal and monetary policy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.